0: morning, Pacific Hope Church. It's a joy to be with you virtually this morning and look together with you at God's Word. By means of introduction, I invite you to open your Bibles or your phones or your iPad to 1 Kings chapter 16. This morning we'll be looking at a different genre of Scripture than we've been in for the past several years. Rather than look at it, looking at a letter like written by Paul, we'll be looking at, uh, historical narrative from the, the historical book of 1 Kings. The text that we'll be looking at today will be helpful to us as New Covenant believers in marveling anew at the cross of Jesus Christ. From the perspective of 2 of Corinthians, we've had Paul pointing us backwards in the rearview mirror, so to speak, to the finished work of Jesus Christ but today we'll be looking back at the story of redemptive history and looking forward to the cross, something that we we need so much as followers of Christ to appreciate how God's perfect plan at the perfect time was brought about through the coming of Jesus Christ. The text we'll be looking at today is a a bit long, so I'm going to break it down for you into four different sections. We'll go through, and at the end of each of these sections in the narrative, we'll look at an application for our own spiritual lives. By way of introduction, 1 Kings was likely written down during the time of the exile uh, into the, the land of Babylon or shortly thereafter. That's very important for us to understand because the people of Israel had long been a people reliant on oral tradition and passing on stories from one generation to the other. But during their time under the, the hand of the Babylonians, they, they learned the discipline of writing things down. And that's important because these words are God's word preserved for us today. Not only that, but the, the particular time in which they were written down was a time in which the people of Israel were in a, sen- a sort of divine time out. They were under God's hand of punishment, and it's much like a a child being asked by a parent, do you know why you're in time out? And clearly, by what we see in in 1 Kings, there's an understanding of why it is that God has been chastening his people time and time again. Specifically, 1 Kings, um, its authorship is is unknown to us, but I'll present to you a couple of different theories as to its authorship, which are important for us. Some of the Jewish uh, rabbis felt that perhaps Jeremiah the prophet and his scribe Baruch had written down the words of First and Second Kings. Others have held that perhaps a Levitical group in exile wrote down these words, and that that group of Levites had a strong expertise on the Book of Deuteronomy. In fact, they referred to as some as Deuteronomists. We could call them Dutes for short. This is really important because the text that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 11, as Brother Ryan read for us, has everything to do with the narrative that we're going to see unfold today in 1 Kings. So this is exciting for us, and it's important for us to have the context of of the cross, right? And we have this happening in, in the life of Elijah the prophet, yet everything that's in this account points back to the law and to Deuteronomy. So we can understand what Jesus says to his disciples on the Emmaus Road, that everything that happened in the law and the prophets is fulfilled in him. And so today we'll have the joy of looking at both the law and the prophets and seeing how all of that points to Jesus Christ, specifically through the life and the ministry of Elijah. Let's begin by praying and we'll look at the the first of the four sections that we'll unpack together today. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for the holiness and the infallibility of your revealed word. God, we thank you that your word has been preserved for us throughout generations, that it has been passed down and has been proven to be truthful time and time again. We thank you in a time of, of relative truth and misinformation and all of those things, Lord God, that your word is trustworthy. We thank you for giving that to us and we pray that this morning as we examine scripture, we'll behold anew the finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ, that will rejoice in the fact that we have Scripture in our hands and Scripture in our hearts. God, may everything that we look at today be edifying to us, that your name would be exalted. In your name we pray. Amen. Just so you don't get lost in the narrative, I'm going to share with you that we'll look at this uh, text, beginning at 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29 and f- finishing the chapter, uh, the 17th chapter of 1 Kings in four different sections. The first section we'll look at, by way of introduction, is looking at King Ahab and some of the, the ways in which uh, God was instructing his people through the example, not a good one, by the way, of King Ahab. The second section that we'll look at is Elijah the weatherman, who, who holds back the rain. The third section we'll look at is Elijah going to the widow at Zarephath and supernaturally providing the food necessary to sustain her life. And the fourth section that we'll look at is Elijah the prophet bringing life to the widow's son who died. Those four separate sections. But along with those four sections, if you're writing them down, I would like to offer to you four different applications. I'm going to give those to you now so you don't get lost, and we'll come back to those as we unpack this rich text. The first section is that you can bet your life on the Word of God. The second thing is you, as a New Covenant believer, can pray the Word of God. The third section is that the Word of God serves to demonstrate who God is to the unbeliever. And the fourth and final section is that our God has the final word over death. You'll see in all four sections, the key thing is the word of God. And we'll see that time and time again. Let's get started with this first section, beginning at 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 28th year of Asa, king of Judah, And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar in the house of Baal erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So we're introduced to our antagonist, Ahab. Ahab, of course, was, was known for being a bad king. We see him in secular literature as King Ahab, or as Captain Ahab in Moby Dick. And we, we know that this Ahab is, a, is all around a king that was despicable because of what he did. The way he led the people of Israel over more than two decades He took what his father did in building up Samaria as the the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he took that place, and he instituted, very intentionally, worship of false gods. In the NASB, it says, It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. From Sunday school days, we've heard the expression, ah, there's a Jezebel in the church, right? And we always sort of maybe get the idea that we should feel bad for Ahab that he married the wrong girl and things went sideways, but that's not the case. What we have here is a guy who went headlong into disobedience to God and his word. We know this because the Deuteronomists allow us to make that connection. If you flip back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7, just briefly before the text that we read together at the beginning, we see God giving warnings to his people as they're ushered in to the land of Canaan. Beginning at at verse 2, it says, And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. "'Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. "'You shall not give your daughters to their sons, "'nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. "'For they will turn your sons away from following me "'to serve other gods. "'Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, "'and he will quickly destroy you. "'But thus you shall do to them. "'You shall tear down their altars "'and smash their sacred pillars "'and hew down their ashram "'and burn their graven images with fire. "'For you are a holy people to the Lord your God.' The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So whoever penned down 1 Kings for us wants us to very intentionally see that Ahab is going against the law and that there are stern consequences for having done that. It's important as we look at this text and what we'll examine together, Lord willing, next week that As God displaced the Canaanites, there were already polytheistic practices going on in that place. God wanted to protect his people from that, and God wanted his renown to be spread in the land of Canaan. And for that reason, he sets up these ground rules. And by way of of understanding the context, the Canaanite theology is rather complicated, but I'm going to introduce you today four names of different gods. The first one is El, E-L. And El is is basically like a a father figure god, the head of the the Canaanite pantheon, if you will. And he has a wife, Asherah. And the common practice of of worshiping Asherah would involve putting up a a cedar pole, perhaps, or a large pole, like you might think of a a totem pole, for example. And the idea was that El and Asherah had many offspring. And among those offspring, they had a son named Baal. And Baal was known as being a, a god of Uh, fertility and life, and they had another son named Mot, M-O-T, and that is the god of death. And the the Canaanite people believed that these two brothers were in a constant cyclical struggle against one another. Life over death, uh, fertility over um, basically times of of, uh, drought. In fact, uh, the text that follows this, which we all know well, is Elijah with the prophets of Baal. And what they were having uh, on um, Mount Carmel was really a a seasonal thing where they would ask Baal to overcome Mot and have the dry season end and the rains to come. So in the midst of all this, it's important for us to understand that Asherah is Baal's mom in their mind and that these gods were strictly off limits for the people of Israel to be worshiping. So what does Ahab do? He goes to Ethbal, the king of the Sidonians, whose name actually has the foreign god in his name, takes his daughter's hand in marriage and fully embraces everything that they were supposed to destroy and displace. Verse 34 gives us an interesting little bit of, of Uh, side note, which would seem not to fit with the text, right? We go from talking about Ahab to, by the way, during Ahab's 21 years, we've got this guy named Hiel, the Bethelite, and he built Jericho. Look what it says. He laid its foundations with the loss of his firstborn and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son. Well, this points back to the initial conquest of Jericho, one of the first Canaanite cities. What happens? They march around the walls of Jericho. God supernaturally brings it down. And then God, through Joshua, speaks a word. Here's what he says. Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son, he shall... Set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. So, as we look at this particular text, what we can see is while we don't know that Ahab commissioned the rebuilding of Jericho or anything like that, we know that the state of the people in general was bad at this time, right? So it goes with the people as with its leader and vice versa. The whole situation is exactly in contrast to what God had ordained. So, We could make a number of applications as we we move on to the next section here. One would be, you know, uh, you shouldn't marry with unequal yoke, right? Don't marry outside the faith, and that would be a great sermon. But the application that I want us to have here is that you can bet your life on the Word of God. Everything that God spoke to his people about what was going to happen when they went into Canaan, from, you're going to ask me for a king, and I don't think it's a good idea, right? So now they've got a king. It was a bad idea. They've got a divided kingdom with Samaria as its capital. They've, instead of tearing down the ashram, they're building temples to Baal. But the author of 1 Kings here includes for us this additional detail about the guy who rebuilds Jericho and says, just so you know, the word of the Lord, which was spoken by Joshua, came to pass. His sons died as a consequence of that. Now we'll move on to the second section beginning at the very beginning of 1 Kings chapter 17. We have a, a, a new protagonist on the scene. This is Elisha. Elijah the Tishbite. Here's what it says. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, and we don't know if he actually had a face-to-face confrontation with Ahab or if he was sending a message, but what we do know is that Elijah's message is in direct response to Ahab's conduct. Look what he says, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him saying, go away from here, turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, this is a remarkable passage for a number of reasons. First of all, we're introduced to this new uh, individual, Elijah the prophet, who comes out of Essentially nowhere, right? And in fact, for this reason, the, the Jewish people have a, an uncanny fascination with the life and the ministry of Elijah. Unlike other men in the Old Testament, we're not given a, an intricate genealogy. We just have Elijah. He was a Tishbite. He was one of the settlers of Gilead. That's all we know about him. We do know, however, because this was written by Deuteronomists, that he was a legitimate prophet. How do we know that? Because in the book of Deuteronomy and in the law, we're established that if a prophet comes and he speaks in the name of God of Israel and what he says comes to pass, heed his word. On the contrary, stone the guy to death. So we have a a legit prophet of Yahweh. In fact, his, his name even means Yahweh is my God. My God is Yahweh. So what an amazing thing. This prophet comes on the scene and he is now speaking on behalf of Yahweh. While all of the people are caught up with the messages of El and Asherah and Baal and Mot. we hear from the one true God, the living God who sends his prophet. And his prophet cares to confront the corruption of this evil king. And he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Now, it's important for us to understand um, that what Elijah is doing as a prophet of the Lord, and the way in which he brings about the the stopping of the rain, is not of his power. It's because he is speaking the word of the Lord. In fact, there's two texts that are are worth mentioning as we look at our second application. And the second application is that we can pray the word of God. So what Elijah is calling to mind is like, not his idea of how to punish Ahab, but rather it's from the text that we read together today. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 17. I'll start at verse 16 for context. Beware that your hearts are not deceived, and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit. And you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. So, what Elijah is doing, he's calling to mind the word that God has already spoken something of a renewing of the covenant or a reminder of your terms and conditions. I just uh, updated my iPhone the other night, and the first thing I get when the phone comes on is, "Accept the terms and conditions, you might want to remember this great big long thing, right? What Elijah is doing is he is calling to mind that which God has already spoken. And in fact, I love how James chapter 5 explains, particularly in light of what was commonly understood about Elijah, right? He, he is put into a right perspective in how the book of James ends. Let's look at this. James chapter 5. Start at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. What an interesting way they're described. He was a man with a nature like ours, right? There is not something like entirely supernatural intrinsically about who Elijah was, but rather who Elijah acted on behalf of, which is Yahweh. Yahweh is my God. So the application for us as we wrap up what is an international month of prayer, is that what we see in this particular text is a servant of God prays according to God's covenant promises. He prays according to that, and in faith, God responds to that. So when we pray for the persecuted church, for example, do we pray that God would end all persecution? Not necessarily. We pray that they would endure under persecution. In fact. There's a, a really interesting parallel in, in what Elijah is asking God for right now. God is, asking, God, God is being asked by Elijah to institute a divine sanctification. Make it stop raining that they were, may remember the covenant that was established with them. And so as we pray for the persecuted church, that bears mentioning too. Pray in accordance with what we've been told. What did Jesus say? Hey, if, if they, they hated me, they're going to hate you right? Those types of persecution are are there, and we should pray that there would be a sanctification and a strengthening of the church, not necessarily an elimination of that persecution. But as we look at this this text, we understand that what is happening here is that God is beginning a a a three-and-a-half-year period of curse. He's taking away those blessings, the rain and the watershed that would fall in the land of Israel, and he's making that stop Interestingly, there's some collateral damage to that, right? It doesn't just affect the borders of Israel. We're going to see in section three now that that famine, that drought, isn't just isolated to God's people, but it affects those who are around God's covenant people. Let's move into section three. This is starting at verse eight of chapter 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And she was going to get it. And he called to her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl, And a little oil in a jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Going to stop there for just a moment because we see God supernaturally providing for His prophet yet again. First, it was sending ravens with bread and meat twice a day, and He stayed there by that brook until the the consequences of that drought caught up, the water dried out, and now He needs some place to go. And God, through his spirit, directs Elijah with where to go. And he says, you need to go to Zarephath. Now, where is Zarephath? It's in the area of Sidon, right smack dab in the heart of Baal worship. So he's going to leave and go over to where this sort of frenemy is, right? At this point, there's some, there's some frenemy going on between the people of Sidon and the people of Israel. Why? Well, because they're married together, right? We've now like, taken the daughter of the king and married him to the king of Israel. And so you know, we might have a little bit more friendliness, but there's no confusion about the fact that there's a different God for, these, for the people of Israel and a different God for the Sidonians. And so the widow is immediately aware of that. And no doubt, Elijah is aware of that as he's being told to march right into the heart of Baal worship where the famine is no less severe and he's supposed to pick out a widow. Which one, right? But he sees this one widow who's gathering sticks. Having spent some time in, uh, in Central America, you know that when you're going to do cooking, you have to have firewood. Now in good times, you would get logs or branches. She's getting sticks, so, we are literally at the bottom of the barrel here. There's like not even sufficient fuel to burn it fu- to, to and make fire. And Elijah goes to her and he asks her for water, right? He starts out with that. And she goes to get it for him. She's on the way to get it. And as she's going to get it, he calls her and says, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. And she responds, perhaps with a little bit less graciousness than at first, and says, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Do you catch the desperation in the situation? She's out of firewood, she's out of oil, she's out of flour, she's out of hope. Like, she's going to go in and fix her last supper. She's starving to death. And Elijah responds to her, in only the way that a man of God can can respond he says then elijah said to her do not fear do as i have said but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me and afterwards make one for yourself and for your son and then elijah speaks on the behalf of his god his god is who yahweh yahweh is my god for thus says the god of israel the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted nor shall the jar of oil be empty until that day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah. There are many noteworthy things, and in fact, this passage alone would serve as a great text for the entire sermon. So I don't want to move over it too hastily, but I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler alert. The fourth point of our message today is, is where I'm most excited to take us, and that is Christ having the final word over death. But what we have here is that the word of God is being spoken for the purposes of reaching an unbeliever. In the midst of all the drought and all the famine, there were certainly people with needs all over the place, but God goes specifically through Elijah to this one woman and to her son. And he meets a specific need, but for the purposes of highlighting who he is, right? Right now, she's a Canaanite with Canaanite gods, and she sees that in this struggle between Baal, the god of fertility, and Mot, the god of death, the god of death is clearly winning. So Elijah goes in, and he is introducing yet another player, right? Not just another god to be added to the the pantheon of gods, but the God, the one true God, his God. And he says, look, go make food. It's not going to run out. This would be a a nice message if we were talking about prosperity and how God brings about enough, there's always going to be oil in our jar, right? But that's not what this is about. This is about, thus says the Lord God of Israel. This text is about God highlighting in in a supernatural way The truth of his word. We also see something remarkable here when we understand the comparisons between Elijah and the future ministry of Christ. Keep in mind that of the prophets, the people of Israel revered Elijah above many others. He didn't have a genealogy, he was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, right? And we know that he did some some supernatural things in a remarkable way that other prophets didn't do. One of these ways is that he, he goes in and he provides supernaturally. It's not coincidence that immediately after Jesus feeds the 5,000, the word on the street is, this guy's got some amazing prophetic powers. And so Jesus takes Peter aside. Let's look at it together in Luke chapter, I believe it's chapter 4. Jesus feeds the 5,000. The word on the street is, Maybe this is the Elijah that we've been waiting for, right? This is what's happening. Maybe this is the Elijah that we're waiting for. Luke chapter 9. So when we go through uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 10 and on, we see him, Jesus, providing food miraculously to all who are there. And then we go to chapter 18, or sorry, verse 18 of Luke 9. And it says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. So even in, in the, with the, the advent of Christ... There's this expectation of of Elijah coming, right? And there's this connection in in the, the people's minds in Jesus' day between the supernatural provision. And so the word on the street is, it's Elijah. And Peter rightfully identifies, no. This guy is coming because he is the mere power, the mere word of God, God in flesh. But the other interesting thing about the connection between Elijah being sent to the widow of Zarephath and Christ is a connection that Christ himself makes in Luke chapter 4. This is one of my absolute favorite um, examples of how Christ interacted with people. He goes into the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth, and you know this story well. He picks up the scroll, the attendant gives him the scroll, he reads from the scroll exactly in the part of uh, Isaiah, and he says, today in your hearing, these words have been fulfilled. And then he sits down, and, and look what happens as he, as he sits down. It says, And he rolled up the scroll. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 20. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. What a remarkable connection that that Christ makes between his own prophetic ministry and that of Elijah. As we know, Christ came not just to redeem those who were under the, the curse of the law within the, the people of Israel, but also to create an entire new covenant people, to go to the Gentiles, to go to those outside of that community. And what we see is this remarkable way in which Elijah prefigures that. He's a prophet, and he doesn't go just to the people of Israel. He goes to the heart of Baal worship, to, the, to a widower who is no doubt a pagan non-believer and he ministers to her. And he speaks to her the word of God. And for that reason, the third application that I would leave with you is that the, the word of God allows you to speak truth to an unbeliever. It's great that in our, in our holy huddle, we speak in, to each other in hymns and, and songs and spiritual songs, right? But the word of God is regenerating us. And for that reason, we ought to speak it to an unbelieving world. It's our, it's our joy and our privilege to do that. And so... While there are many things that could be said about this particular text, it's remarkable in the way that Elijah goes to those people who are under that same curse, and he brings about this supernatural provision. Looking at the the end of this particular section, it says, So she went and did according to the word of the Lord, and she and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the the word of the Lord that he spoke through Elijah." Now, we don't know at this point whether or not the widow became a convert to Yahweh. We don't know that, but certainly he was there for a long enough period of time that she saw the way in which God sustained her life and she became familiar with this God, Yahweh. It's at that point we begin this fourth section and the story takes a bit of an unexpected turn. Verse 17 of 1 Kings chapter 17. Now, it came about after these things, that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God, that you have come to bring my iniquity to remembrance and have put my son to death? What we have happening here is a, is an explanation using some very clear words to let us know that this young man, we don't know how old he is, right? There are some that say maybe he was a nursing child because it says Elijah takes the child from his mother's bosom. But we also know that he eats flour and bread, so we don't know how old he is. But nonetheless, what we do know is that a widow with only one son, this is her future provision, this is her husband's name, this is her everything. And God, apparently, according to what she's understanding, takes that away, right? So it might have been easy for her to step back from any, any newfound faith that she might have and say, the God Mott is winning here. The God of death is clearly winning here. We've been sustained for a while, but all hope is lost. I've lost everything now. And it's, it's remarkable that the expression that's used here, there's, there is no breath left in him, Right? you might say, well, maybe he was just having an asthma attack. He was just out of breath, right? But the word of God clarifies there and says, no, no, no. He was dead, right? So she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? You have come to, be, to bring my iniquity to remembrance, and you have put my son to death. Now, in our culture, death is a very interesting, um, especially in the United States, how we deal with death. Is, is quite unusual. People don't talk about death. We go to great lengths to not talk about death. So for the Canaanites, they may have had Mott, the god of death, and death was something that they were perhaps fixated on in one extreme. Our extreme is we go the opposite direction. We don't want to talk about death. We don't want to acknowledge death. But if you see what's happening here, there's a connection in this woman's mind between iniquity and death. And that connection is no coincidence. Even Unbelievers have no choice but to, in some way, spiritualize death. What we understand throughout um, Near Eastern culture is that they often associated a specific sin with death, right? We look at the the blind man, for example, um, and the, the question was asked to Christ, who sinned, him or his parents, right? Like, what do they do to deserve their son being blind, and the question would have been no different in a case like this. What was it that she did? Was it because she was a, a pagan non-believer? Was it because she had doubts? Why is it that God is reminding her of a sin because of and through her son's death? Now, for us, having understood the, the historical redemptive narrative, we know that death is no doubt a consequence of sin. Not a specific sin per se, for original sin through Adam and through any number of a multitude of sins that you and I commit personally. Death is absolutely a consequence of sin, and she understands that. One of the texts that I find remarkable with regards to our attitude about death is one that we find in Hebrews chapter 2. And one of the, the main reasons why Christ had to come in human form and had to come in the way that he did to free us from death. But look what we see. He came not only to free us from death, but also from a lifelong fear of slavery to this death. Look what it says, verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is an amazing thing. The entire time that Elijah's with this widow, she has the fear of death, right? What if the food runs out? What if my life can't be sustained anymore, Right? And then she's ultimately confronted with death. If we look at everything that's going around us with this crazy 2020, what we see is is a group of people who don't have the hope of the gospel who are gripped by fear of death. A group of people in in a Western culture that try to look away from death as long as possible. Our goal is to use modern science and all those things to stave off the clutches of death for as long as possible so that we can not only ignore death but also ignore sin. And here we see that Elijah and what this woman go through both have to be confronted. Death and sin, for which it's a consequence. Going back to 1 Kings chapter 17. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. And he said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him to the upper room where he was living. And laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God. Who's his God? Yahweh is his God. O Lord, my God, you have also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? He asks God this, an earnest question. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What a remarkable encounter. And there's a couple of things that I would point out here. First of all, How is it that that Elijah responds to this? He responds with questions to God. God, how how could this happen? And he responds in earnest prayer to God, like we saw in James chapter 5, a prayer of a righteous man praying in accordance with God's covenant, asking God to bring back life into this child, who not just out of breath, the kid's dead. (laughs) And so God responds to Elijah's prayer and brings life back to the dead. To my knowledge, and I could be wrong, you're welcome to examine scripture as you always should, I cannot find any earlier resurrection account in the Old Testament. So for the, for the Jewish people to see the resurrection account of Elijah, this is something remarkable. There's been some prophets that have been done some pretty amazing stuff, but what we see here is unique and in fact, the Jews in Jesus' day had a little bit of a, a disconnect on their understanding of the resurrection, right? You have the Sadducees that don't believe in the resurrection and the Pharisees that do. And Jesus sets the whole thing straight by saying, he's the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob because God is the God of the living and not of the dead. Furthermore, of course, we'll look at a couple of texts together that miraculously show that Christ came to be the resurrection of the dead. Death, death, conquered in Christ. But in the case of this miracle, we see Elijah the prophet speaking the truth of God and bringing back her son from the dead. That which was most precious to her, that which was most impossible, that which most showed the, the supremacy of Yahweh in this. Not Baal, not Mot, not Asherah, not El, not any of these Canaanite gods, but the God of Elijah brings back this child from the dead. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. Now, interesting, the word of the Lord is this phrase that we've highlighted a couple of times as we've, as we've looked through these four different sections. But whose word brought the child back to, back to life? Was it Elijah's word? Was it his declaration? Did he declare something here? No, he asks God. If we compare that to the new covenant accounts of resurrection that we see throughout the ministry of Christ, Who's spoken word, right? We see Jairus' daughter. And of course, you know, Jesus says, she's just asleep. (laughs) And and what do they do? They laugh at him, right? And he says, little girl, arise. Let's go to the book of Luke yet again. Let's go to Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, we see Christ encountering another widow who also tragically loses her child. Luke chapter seven, starting at verse eleven. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man had died, was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and had considerable and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, "Do not weep." Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said. "'Young man, I say to you, arise.' And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, "'A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. At the word of his voice, arise!' Arise, the spoken word of Christ, the Messiah, the one that the the people of Israel have long awaited for, he shows up, and not through supplication to God, but through his spoken word, he raises the dead. What a remarkable thing. There's enough crowd going around. We've got a whole casket, and he sits up in obedience to the, the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh. And look how the people respond to that. They're like, well, this has to be Elijah, right? Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. The text doesn't tell us Elijah, but that's very likely the, the connotation that they would have had in their mind. And look at the text that immediately follows this. Verse 18. Keep in mind, the person asking this question is the very one that Jesus declares to be the Elijah who was to come, right? John the Baptist This is revealed to the disciples, to Peter and John, as they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They ask him, wait a minute, wasn't Elijah supposed to come first? And he says, I tell you, Elijah did come first. And it dawned on them at that moment that John the Baptist was that Elijah. So here we've got this guy who Jesus declares to be the Elijah who is to come, sending a message saying, Let's look what he says. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What an amazing encounter. The the Elijah who was to come has come, and he is inquiring of Christ. You're the one, aren't you? And we know that he is because the dead are raised. At the word of his voice, the dead are raised. Another resurrection encounter that I would like you to look at together with me is that of Lazarus in John chapter 11. This account's a little bit lengthy as well, but warrants reviewing this together. We see Jesus' dear friend, sick to the point of death, Jesus intentionally waits until he's dead, and not just a little dead, but like buried dead, not just Buried dead, but like four days buried dead, right? And so there's this, this consternation in the people that that this man has died. And so now Jesus is, is going to address the situation in a way that will make his identity as Messiah known and reveal the God Yahweh. Let's look at beginning at verse 11. Then he said after that, then he said, after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of his sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So look at this, we can't get this right, right? <laughs> is he dead or is he asleep? Is he asleep is he dead? To exit having any doubt, it says, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. We got that? And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that the body had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Jesus said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Right? A very good pat answer. She's like, I believe in the resurrection. I've read about how Elijah brought someone back from the dead, and I understand the promise of resurrection. I know that someday the hurt will be gone. I know that someday he'll be resurrected. And Jesus' response is, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? How different is, is that encounter than what we see with the prophet Elijah. Elijah stretches himself out three times, cries out to God, God, why did this child have to die? Whereas Jesus, the God-man himself, allowed the death of Lazarus to happen so that he would show that his spoken word can reverse the curse of death. All the curses that we see throughout the law, restated through the prophets, reversed in this. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, he went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, and she fell at his feet and saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could this man who opened the eyes of the blind man Have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was laying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Not a little dead. Jesus said to her, Did I not say that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around when I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. What a remarkable thing that John includes in this, right? Jesus prays out loud to Father God so that those who are in earshot might understand his connection with Father God. But, It's by his word that Lazarus emerges from death. Death has been overcome by the spoken word of Christ, word in flesh. Lazarus, come forth. The man who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. His face was wrapped around with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them of the things that Jesus had done. And they were still wondering, could this be the Elijah we're waiting for? Right? It, it looks pretty obvious here that, that Martha's got it. You are the son of God. You are the Christ. The Jews may have still had some doubt, which is why it was necessary not only for Jesus to orchestrate the, the resurrection of Jairus' daughter and the, the widow of, uh, at Nain and Lazarus, but he had to orchestrate his own death. So the final resurrection account what we're going to look at today is, is the final resurrection account. Matthew chapter 27. And there's a couple of things that are really amazing and tied together. This look from the life and the ministry of Elijah and looking forward that we see fulfilled in this particular text. Matthew chapter 27. And we'll, we'll begin in... Let's begin at verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among them by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which is, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And all those who were passing were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until about the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And look at the response of the audience those who were observing this horrible thing. And some of those who were standing there, they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Wait a minute, now we're confused, right? We've got, is he Elijah? And now the, the doubt has been resolved. This is not the one we're waiting for. But clearly, maybe he's asking for Messiah to come and save him, the, the forerunner of the Messiah. Maybe he's asking for Elijah to come and save him. And immediately, one of them ran, taking a sponge. He filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed. And gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Surrendering his own life, bearing the weights of of the iniquity of all of mankind, of of all of those that he, he came to save, he takes that sin upon himself. He, of his own volition, gives up his life. Look what the Matthew account includes here. You want resurrection? You want the the power of of the, the Lamb of God sacrificing his life? Look what happens. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, "Truly, this was the Son of God." Where we lived in Honduras, it was a, a typical tradition that you would give the town uh, the town drunks uh, alcohol to go and dig the graves and to tend to the the graveyard areas. Can you imagine being a grave tender at the moment of the resurrection when tombs start coming open? I mean, Christ is not just surrendering his own life, but as a part of his bodily resurrection coming from the tomb, it says that there were others who were resurrected too. And they went into the holy city of Jerusalem and they were seen by others. So the word of resurrection has gotten around. And that word of resurrection is the same word of resurrection that allows us to live our lives today without a lifelong spirit of fear without a lifelong slavery to death. What is death for us as believers? Our God came, and with the word, he conquered it. That's what we know. So in, in looking at what we've seen through this this text, looking at how God speaks to his new covenant people through the history and, and what we see in 1 Kings, we can say that we can bet our lives on the word of God. It's come true, right? We've seen time and time again, if we go from Deuteronomy, we see it true in the the time of Babylonian captivity and we see it true in the time of the prophet Elijah and we see it true in the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of our son Jesus Christ and we know it to be true in our own lives today. The second thing is we know that as New Covenant believers we can pray in accordance with the word of God. The prayer of a righteous avails much. Pray according to what he's already promised us. Bring to mind that which he's already promised to us. Cast your anxieties on him. Believe in him and be saved. The word of God also serves to to bring about regeneration in the lives of unbelievers. Preach it. If you have certainty of resurrection, if you have hope, give a reason for the hope that lives within you. If you're not scared to death of death, if you're not frightened of all the things that could possibly go around in the world, tell the people that you work with, relax. Relax. My God is sovereign over these circumstances. Live with a faith and a certainty that says you have that hope. And finally, Christ has the final word over death. Christ has the final word over death. As he said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. He who believes in me, though he lives, though he die, yet shall he live. Praise God for this truth. He is the word of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your holy holy word. We thank you that you are Yahweh God and that you have come in human form to empathize with our fear of death, to empathize with our many trials that we face and to overcome that death on our behalf. God, we thank you that you have offered us forgiveness from our sins and that you have offered to take away our iniquities and give us the hope of everlasting life. We praise you, Lord God, that we have that hope and promise. Forgive us for the many times that we don't live with that in view. God, we pray that we would also be mindful as we we come into the Advent season and look forward with anticipation the arrival of Messiah. Now that you've come, Lord God, we thank you for that. We pray that we would proclaim that and that we, we pray that we would make others aware, Lord God, that you have come and you have conquered sin and death once and for all as we eagerly wait your return as your people.